We have some big breaking news this morning on This Week in the CLE, the news podcast discussion from Cleveland.com and The Plain Dealer. Longtime city councilman Ken Johnson has finally been arrested for scamming the city, as reported by Mark Namick at least two years ago. We'll get that in a minute. I'm Chris Quinn. I'm here with my colleagues, Jane Cahoon, Laura Johnson, and Chris Ranowski. And we have to start the podcast by correcting something we said yesterday. We fell for one of the oldest tricks in the books, a bad tweet that we attributed to Ted Cruz. And while Ted Cruz has done a lot of really stupid things lately, he did not issue the tweet that we quoted as him yesterday. We apologize to Mr. Cruz. So let's begin. What is the news about Ken Johnson and his arrest following a two-year federal investigation into how he used his expense account? Chris Ranowski, what do we know? This is just happening. Yes. Yeah, so Johnson was arrested this morning and he is charged in federal court with uh, fleecing the city out of more than $127,000 by submitting false monthly expense reports over the course of several years. A federal grand jury in Cleveland indicted him on 15 charges, including two counts of conspiracy to commit theft from federal office, aiding and assisting in the preparation of false tax returns, tampering with a witness and falsification of records during a federal investigation. He and longtime aide Garnell Jameson were indicted on the same charges, but a gentleman by the name of John Hopkins, who served as the executive director of the Buckeye Shaker Square Development Corporation, which is in Johnson's morgue, was also charged with conspiracy to commit theft from a federal program. This the, is, this is let, let, let's, let's say it. This is Mark Damick getting action. When he was a yeah. columnist with our news team, he spent, I think it was 2018, right? It's been so long, maybe it was 2019, digging into all of the abuses and how Cleveland City Council President Kevin Kelly wouldn't stop the abuses. The guy would just put in for expenses, not, not itemize it. Mark methodically just dissected it, humiliated the city for allowing it. Mark now is at WKYC as a reporter, no longer the, the columnist. But he did this. This is him. The investigation started from him. So so it's like a cre it's a results that are far too late, Mark. But way to do, way to go. Well done. Good journalism there. Right. In case people don't remember, he he was basically submitting these maximum um, this a maximum amount of monthly reimbursements of like twelve hundred dollars from the city council for services that were basically never performed. Earlier this month, his his longtime friend Robert Fitzpatrick pleaded guilty to conspiracy to commit theft involving Johnson's work as a, as a ward four representative. And you're right. We did. Namick did start writing about this back in 2018. And the reports basically said that Johnson submitted monthly forms to the council's office each month for several years. And each time he, he was basically given the money that he asked for. And there wasn't a lot of accounting for, for, why he was requesting it so it, well, it was it was outrageous chris yeah. i mean you know mark kept going at the city council president now about to run for mayor saying why aren't you fixing this and he hemmed and he hawed and he wouldn't fix it finally the pressure got so intense they had to do some things to try and rein it in but it, it, it this this look look what's just happened here mm -hmm. the federal government has indicted this guy for what they say is a long-term scam to steal money from the taxpayers of Cleveland. And the council president allowed it to happen. Yeah. And uh, now, <laughs> now it heads to court. But it's, it's amazing. I, I think one of the things that we've, we've stressed, I think, here in, in, in previous conversations we've had about this is just how long it took them to, 
to to get this indictment. I mean, it, this started in 2018. It's 2021 now, and and so this has been a long investigation. <laughs> and Mark did all the work. All we right. did was take the record <laughs> right. that Mark posted on our website and say, "Huh, there's evidence of a crime here. Let's indict him." And it took forever. I, that, is there any? Hasn't Johnson been like? defiant through throughout oh, all, every oh, time yeah. mark tried to um this is jane cahoon by the way oh yeah i mean every at every step this was mark attacking somebody needlessly i mean it was i mean they, they put up the the guardrails is there anything you can see in the documents chris that would explain why it took the feds two and a half years to basically take mark's documents and write up the indictment i haven't looked at the documents honestly this is so this is so breaking as we as we talk about it so to, to give people an idea, the story hasn't even published yet, but but this will be this podcast will be posted later, so it'll be published by the time you listen to it. So. All right, there there is one other thing to talk about here. Mm-hmm. Uh, under indictment, this is an election year in in uh, Cleveland. All the city council members are up, so this would make it very hard for Ken Johnson to run again. But they're already worried down in the council chambers that he's going to take advantage of that city council power to name his own successor. So here's a guy indicted in a big scam. And if they follow tradition, he could name a successor and they fear it'll be his son. They're all worried, I've heard, because they have to run for re-election. And if they go along with that, their opponents are going to say, look, they're letting this crook name his son to council. So they don't know what to do. This is a tradition that is like sanctified. It's silly because it takes away the power of the people to pick their representatives. But this is going to set off a lot of talk among that council on what to do. It's the election year. They all get very afraid in the election is, year. Now, when you say it, there's a tradition, is it codified in law anywhere? I mean, is, is there something no. that to challenge it in any way? Or? No, they just always do it. They just, look, that because of the history, everything down there is based on tradition. That's why Justin Bibb, who's running for mayor, has never spent any time in government, would have a very hard time as mayor because he doesn't know any of these traditions. This is one of them. This is a sacred tradition, you get to name your successor if you decide to leave, and they always do it. The only thing we haven't gone back and checked is whether Bobby White, who also got indicted for crime while he was a sitting councilman, got to name his successor. We should check to see, because that was probably the last time a sitting council member was indicted while in office. Anyway, we've got to move on. It's this week in the CLE. Will summer be almost normal? Is Mike DeWine going to allow bigger crowds to attend Indians, Reds, and other outdoor sports? We turn once again to our sports commentator on this podcast, (laughs) Laura Johnston. I do want to point out, Mike DeWine, I believe, is a partial owner of a minor league baseball team. So there may be a little bit of a conflict of interest here, but let's go on. Isn't that in a different state, though? Like. Yeah, I know, yeah. but if you okay. allow people to play here, I, I don't know. It feels a little right, bit. Okay. Like, go ahead. All right. I wouldn't call myself a sports commentator, but I really feel very passionately about summer. So this is going to be a better year than last year. The Indians are al- going to be allowed to have about a 30% capacity at Progressive Field. That's higher than the 18% ratio that the Browns had this year, although we still don't know the scientific reasoning for this other than it's outside and we haven't been able to point to any specific outbreaks. So. The teams are going to have to come up with their own health protocols, and this will be the same for the Indians, the Reds, the the Rubber Ducks in Akron, probably the Columbus Crew soccer team. They're going to sit in pods, people just like they did at Browns games, and I'm sure there will be rules for lining up for concessions and which door you can go in and out. But the Indians are working with Major League Baseball and the Cleveland Clinic on their safety plan, 
And all fans will be required to wear masks unless they're actively eating and drinking in their seats, which could be most of a ball game, I feel like, when you go. There is one precaution, and that is those COVID variants that are are more dangerous and more contagious. And if those are expected to kind of take over the current COVID, if if something happens where our numbers are going way up, then we're going to be reconsidering this. And in Mike DeWine's defense, he's not just doing it for baseball, which he has the interest in in another state. He's also doing it for soccer. He's basically saying, look, I've learned a lot about the mask. Mm-hmm. The mask is the big protection. It's the key to preventing the virus. Now that we know that, we can have more people get together in these places. It's not really about baseball. It's about where we are. But right. I, I think that's going to make a whole lot of people feel good. And I stand by my prediction, Laura, that July 4th will be our big coming And, you know, I, I was just reading a story in The Atlantic this morning that there, you know, it could be. We could be talking about July 4th, everybody having Remember, a party. You heard it here first. I, <laughs> I started talking about this last year. All right. You're listening this week in the CLE. What does a good government group say about how Cleveland City Hall has taken to providing major news that is not about the coronavirus in its nightly coronavirus report? And how did Cleveland react to our reporting on this story? Chris Ranowski, I don't know that we've ever gotten action faster. Yeah, but also this is one of the most like I'm sure that now that this is going to be put behind us, you all will be happy to not hear me complain about this one more time because this was an everyday complaint with me because. The city was basically burying very important news in these evening coronavirus dispatches they were putting out. And 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 some of the times, I'm not I'm not kidding, they would come out at like 1030, 11 o'clock at night sometimes. And there would be very meaningful stuff in there. Not that the corona, daily coronavirus numbers aren't meaningful, but but it was very a very strange activity that that started almost at the beginning of this whole pandemic. And they just decided for some reason to just start rounding up all of the city news in this thing at the end of the day. And it was really kind of ridiculous. But now they said they're going to they're no longer going to be mixing those potentially sensitive announcements in that nighttime email. And you're right. A a good government group was very critical about that. And 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 even uh, there was a city councilman, Brian Casey, who chairs the utilities committee, was really upset in January when he discovered the announcement of of the director of public utilities resigning about five items deep into the briefing that wasn't put out until at 930 at night. So we had sort of pushed for comment about this. I I know we had been working on a story about it. And- no, 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 no. We did the story. Here's okay, the thing. Okay. Here's the thing. Here's the thing. I, I, I ordered up that story mm-hmm. because there was a release. I think it was Thursday night that had five major news stories in it. And it came out at eight o'clock at night. And I thought, you know, I don't think there's th- this was sinister. You used the word Barry. I don't think they think that clearly. I think what happened is they were right. putting out this daily report. And then sometime last fall, they dropped a piece of news into it. And it caught us all short. You told us the next morning because we were wondering how it came out. And you said, well, they put it in that report. And thought, that's weird. And then it started happening more and more. So we're like the frogs in the pot of water. And it started to boil and we were used to it. And I thought last Thursday night, you know, if anybody came in from out of town, any reporter came in from out of town, they would see this and say, that's really weird. Who does that? Who releases big news in a coronavirus numbers report that's almost unintelligible late at night? And so I just wanted to do a story about it. I think the reaction over there was evidence that maybe people high up the chain didn't realize that was happening because they stopped it immediately. I mean, the story hadn't been on our site but a few hours before they put out a release saying, yeah, we're not going to do that anymore. 
Thank the numbers will be on social media and we're going to release news during the day. But it was annoying because it was coming out really late. We said eight o'clock, but you're right, man. It was getting nine thirty, ten. And it was I mean, it was inconsistent to to be perfectly honest. And 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 again, I know to ninety-nine percent of the the public this this seems like a very small complaint, but and 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 to some degree it is kind of an annoyance. It's not like it was the end of the world. We would catch the news and we would write about it. But to me, it's just much more symbolic of just how how difficult this city is to work with when it comes to public information. I don't know. I tripped. I I hesitated to to, to get the story done because one, I didn't want to look like we were whining. Like, wow, you're putting it out at night. It's hard on us. And two, you know, the alternative to them releasing information could be that they don't release the information. Right. And in one way, it's like, OK, at least we're getting the information, which with City Hall is not always easy. I So, I, I mean, it's one where you're right. The mo- most people don't care about this. This is not a big deal. I just think it's weird. I mean, what other government have you ever dealt with? You've been around the horn. Have you ever dealt with that did something like this? To me, this this singular issue is is one of many that we deal with all the time when it comes with trying to get public information. I mean, we've had to go to the state court of claims to get, you know, things that are obviously public record from the city. And things seem difficult for no reason other than sometimes it just feels like they're being kind of lazy. And I don't I mean, that's what this this yeah, you know, I think. scandal felt like. It's like. Oh, you can't you can't put out three press releases in a day. You just you know right. digest it all into one and put it out whenever you well, feel like. I, and, you know, look, city hall's closed, so nobody's there. They're communicating like we do, and I, I think it just became convenient to say, "Oh yeah, stick that in there, stick that in there." And and again, I'm I wonder how high up people realize this is how it's going. Anyway, they it's, look. I credit them. As soon as they saw the story, they changed it. They're not going to do it anymore. The weirdness ends. Way to go, Bob Higgs. You're listening to This Week in the CLE. What is the latest step First Energy is taking to reform its public policy practices, this time with regard to how it donates to political causes? Jane Cahoon, First Energy seems like it is in a race to appear to be the good guy after years of being not the good guy. This was a a pretty good disclosure we reported yesterday. What is it? Yeah, they they have taken another step toward transparency. They they really are trying to repair their reputation, which has just taken a big beating during this House Bill 6 scandal. But they have agreed to regularly open their books to the public about their political spending. And this is under an agreement that they reached with a New York State public pension fund that happens to be a shareholder in the in the company. So under this deal with the New York State Common Retirement Fund, they, they've agreed to post comprehensive reports on their website twice a year through May 2024, detailing all their spending on any candidates, political parties, and, and ballot measures in any state. And they've also agreed to disclose all payments over $25,000 to any trade association used for political purposes, as well as any organization that that writes and endorses what they call model legislation, you know, bill language that special interests encourage lawmakers to uh to introduce so yeah and it they, follows them saying they're going to cut way back on it which we're trying to assess let me ask you yes. this though what why is this voluntary why isn't a utility that has to go before the public utilities commission to demonstrate its needs 
why isn't it required to show what it's spending to lobby the very people that that might be making those decisions? And when I read the story, I was like, man, this is good. For the next three years, we'll know where they're putting their money, although I don't think they're going to be spending a lot of it, losing some. <laughs> but I, I also can't understand why the legislature hasn't passed a bill to say, hey, you got to do this. You don't have a choice. If you're operating in Ohio and you're a regulated utility, every political dollar you spend that is in Ohio or affects Ohio should be public. Well, let's be clear. There are some campaign finance requirements when, when they make donations or their PAC makes donations. Those have to be reported if they're donating to candidates. But where we get into this gray area is this so-called dark money that goes to groups like Generation Now, which right. is was at the heart of the of the scandal here, where those donations uh, by law do not have to be disclosed. And there has been some movement in the legislature, you know, following when, when the scandal broke that, you know, lawmakers are trying to to push some dark money legislation. <laughs> so, so is Frank LaRose, the secretary of state. But yeah, that, right. it, as far as I know, it hasn't hasn't gone anywhere yet. What a shock. Well, it's good news. Uh, it'll be interesting to see. I am struck by the people that are in charge of First Energy now really have taken a bunch of steps to say, we're being honest. We're, we're, we're not those guys that were here before that have all been run out and, you know, we're involved in all this bad stuff. I mean, you know, First Energy's 60 plus million now officially funded a bribery scheme because the people that handled the money have pleaded guilty. But this is this is a big deal. So can, I was glad I, to see it. Can Chris I just ask you, when, when she mentioned dark money reform, you kind of laughed. Is, uh, is that how much faith you have in the uh, this this practice being reformed? Not not by this legislature. I mean, this legislature <laughs> won't abolish HB6. I mean, this legislature is the one that got completely bought and played for and paid. I mean, I, I And just, they won't expel Larry Householder. Yeah, you know, <laughs> this, this is the lamest group of elected officials probably in the history of the state. And and because of gerrymandered districts, they have protection. But if we ever stop gerrymandering the districts to the degree we have, I think they'll all get run out. I mean, I hear from people all the time that are furious about HB6 and the fact that these these folks will not do the right thing. I mean, these are the ones that passed it. They now know they passed a completely corrupt bill that stuck it to the people they represent, and they won't fix it. It's, it's mind-boggling. It's this week in the CLE. Northeast Ohio saw some news of a pretty huge corporate merger Monday where the rubber meets the road. Laura Johnston normally... In the old days, this would have been a huge story for Northeast Ohio, and everybody would talk about it. Not so much, though. I guess the, the what what is defined as big news today is very different. What is this, and what are the numbers? They're pretty big. They are big, and this is especially a big deal in Ohio. The Goodyear Tire and Rubber Company, the Akron-based uh, longtime fixture, is buying competitor Cooper Tire and Rubber Company. That's a $2.5 billion deal. Goodyear's the world's third largest tire maker. Cooper is based in Finley, originally founded in Akron, which I did not know until now, and is the fifth largest tire maker in North America. It has 10 factories, 10,000 employees worldwide. Think about it. We all have tires on our car. Like This affects probably most of us. They're going to combine the companies to what they create, what they call a strong American manufacturing brand. They had a combined $17.5 billion in sales in 2019. They plan to close this deal in the second half of 2021. They got to get regulatory and shareholder approvals. And Goodyear says the deal is going to strengthen their company's presence both at home and double the presence in China. It thinks it's going to have $165 million in savings through synergies within two years. 
I don't know if synergies mean layoffs, but yeah, it's a big deal. But we lose competition. So when the number two buys the number five, you lose competition. So I wonder what kind of, it's good for the, the economy. It's good for the people that work for Goodyear, but is it good for people who have to buy tires? And I don't don't know what it's going to mean for Akron if there's going to, you know, if that's going to change anything. Yeah, we'll have to see. It's this week in the CLE. Why is Cleveland City Council talking about changing its laws regarding landlords to reduce the number of them that don't take care of their properties? Chris Warnowski, I, I was kind of surprised in reading this story to learn that this is the first time this has arisen as a problem, the idea of these absentee landlords. So what's going on here? Right. And absentee landlordism is going to become a bigger problem, too, I think, as, as we come out of this pandemic and we see where foreclosures and things start to happen. But the city is is starting to sort of take a look at this issue of of how to to basically punish absentee landlords because they really can't right now. City ordinances allow the city to take action against individual landlords who don't register their properties and comply with the housing codes. But these ordinances aren't really effective against so-called limited liability corporations or LLCs, as you might see printed out from time to time. But but LLCs are basically set up specifically to shield the owners from personal liability for actions of the company. And and what you see in the real estate business is that every, you know, one landlord will have, you know, if they own 20 properties, they will have 20 LLCs, one for each of those properties. And so what happens is, is if a house or a, a property falls in disrepair, the city really can't do much to hold them accountable for that. And what they're looking at now is the possibility of trying to put liens on properties that that are LLCs that will essentially prevent the sale of the property. Um, but I, but let me, let me stop you, because I, I thought that existed now. If, if I cite your property, if I'm a city, and I say, you know, your windows are all missing, and cite you, one, you have to appear in court, and two, if you don't pay your fines, I get to put liens on your property and eventually foreclose on you. I can take your property away. So, so what's the difficulty? They just cannot identify the actual owners to to take into court. Yeah, so, so yeah. So when you, I, I don't know if you've ever had to establish an LLC, but it it, it effectively you can have a, a registered agent do it and your name won't appear on any of the paperwork. And so it gets hard to, to sort of run down people and, and track people. And it, it's, it's, it's a way to essentially shield yourself from, from liability. I mean, this would, I mean, it's not just for, for landlords. It, it's, 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 it's something that is applied, you know, a, across a lot of different kind of businesses. But if I'm the sleazy landlord and I own a house that's in disrepair and the city cites me, and I don't show up, I'd be afraid I'd lose it. So I, I would think I'd want to take, I mean, if, if I'm, if the risk is I lose the property and maybe that what the city's saying is the steps to that are too cumbersome. That, mm-hmm. I mean, there was a line in the story that said they never contemplated this problem when they built it, that they use driver's license laws and vehicle registration laws. They withhold them from landlords so that they will do their properties. So maybe it's just the municipal court structure doesn't give them the power, but it's interesting. And you're right. They expect to see a whole lot more of this is. Uh, yeah, it's, it's I mean, you go back and you look at the Cooper tires thing. You have a lot of foreign companies and a lot of domestic companies that are currently just buying up whole. This happened in the Great Recession. I, you know, there people just went and bought whole neighborhoods when the foreclosure crisis hit. And, 
financially benefited when the economy improves. So you're going to start seeing that consolidation and and lack of competition, I guess, for a lack of a better word, in the in the real estate business as well. Okay, you're listening to this week in the CLE. Do we have even more evidence now that the race for Ohio Senate will not take place next year? It's going to consume the entire next 22 months. First, we had all the candidate speculation after Rob Portman announced he would not seek re-election next year. Have we already entered the endorsement season, Jane Cahoon? Well, yes, we have, Chris. <laughs> this race is definitely on, at least on the Republican side, where Jane Timken, the, the former chairman of the Ohio Republican Party, she has scored the first endorsement from a member of Congress, and that would be Bob Gibbs from Holmes County, who says uh, Timken is going to get in there and fight for the agenda of former President Donald Trump. Timken's also gotten endorsements from several other Republican leaders in Stark County, which is her home base, and her campaign plans to roll out even more endorsements. It should be noted that that Gibbs has received significant financial support in his campaigns from from Timken and the Timken family, like tens of thousands of dollars. But anyway, so far, her only Republican rival in this race, who is former state treasurer Josh Mandel, he's laying claim to being the only, you know, Trump's biggest ally in Ohio. And um, he's also working hard to line up support. In fact, he's got appearances booked this weekend at the American Conservative Union's CPAC conference in, in Florida. And uh, I believe Trump is also expected to to speak there. So these two are duking it out already. And we know Josh Mandel won't sit tight. If Gibbs has endorsed her, he's going to come mm-hmm. up with somebody mm-hmm. that he says, well, I got this endorsement. I just can't remember any previous statewide election that was this hot and heavy almost two years out. I mean, we have a governor's race at the same time and we have other races on the state level where, you know, other than people saying, yeah, I'm, I'm planning to seek re-election, there's no talk, there's no battle, but man, this is fevered in the party. I mean, the Democrats, mm-hmm. nobody's announced. It's just been, they're thinking about it. And I mean, are we going to be covering the Senate race for 22 months? Have we ever done that before? I I don't recall things heating up quite this quickly. I mean, you know, elections that the campaigns start earlier and earlier, but this is really, yeah, I, as I said, I keep having to remind myself that the election is not until next year. Yeah, we have a whole city mayor's election to get through before we get there. <laughs> right. <laughs> okay, you're listening to This Week in the CLE. Let's squeeze in one more. How is the Summit County move to a coronavirus vaccine lottery a way to make the system there more fair to people eligible for shots? Lord Johnston, you explained this to me very succinctly last night. Please explain it to everybody. So the free-for-all was overwhelming their system. They were allowing people to sign up all at one time. They'd say, we've got this many slots that are going to open. Go for it. And it would like open at noon on a Tuesday. And their system just couldn't handle it. Too many people were trying to call or to use the website. It would crash. I had like five family members all trying multiple devices at the same time to try to get my dad an appointment and we couldn't get one. We just got error messages. So instead, they're going to do a lottery for everyone who's registered and they'll be able to say weekly, you got a slot. And while this does seem more fair, or at least, you know, makes a little bit more sense, we've already gotten complaints you know, through email saying they should be doing it by age. They shouldn't be doing a lottery for 65 and older. They should be giving it to 80 year olds. So um, this isn't going <laughs> to make everybody feel better. Yeah, we just need more vaccine until we get that supply, which everybody keeps thinking in four or six weeks we'll be in ahead of it. 
people are going to continue to complain. I mean, I've got, I still hear from people in their eighties who are furious. The teachers got it. And there's a bunch of people that are 65 and older that can't even find places that will take care of them. It's causing a lot of angst. And, uh, and Mike DeWine's discussion yesterday about how he's already started mass vaccination centers in some places just <laughs> didn't ring true, but okay. You're listening to This Week in the CLE. All right. Well, no technical difficulties today. We had a full house. Not bad, right, Jane? You didn't have to talk as much. Yay. Yeah. (laughs) These guys are here to save me from myself. Yeah, save you from yourself. Thanks, Jane. Thanks, Laura. Thanks, Chris. Thanks to everybody who listens to this podcast.